Our primary reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 31. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and conquer it, and hold sway over the fish of the sea, and the fowl of the heavens, and every beast that crawls upon the earth. And God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the face of all the earth, and every tree that has fruit-bearing seeds, yours they will be for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and to all the fowl of the heavens, and to all that crawl on the earth, which has the breath of life within it, the green plants for food. And so it was. And God saw that all he had done, and look, it was very good. And it was evening, and it was morning, the sixth day. The word of the Lord. So all of us uh, tend to have these uh, kind of reoccurring nightmares when you are like really stressed out. Like this is kind of something we all kind of deal with, right? Sometimes it's like you're really stressed and you just have these dreams and you're like, oh, your teeth always fall out. Uh, or it's like someone's always chasing you in, in your dreams. I, I have two. Uh, one is that I have a gun that never works. Like it just shoots bubbles or something like that. And the other one is the preacher doesn't show up. And then they're like, you got to go up, Colin. And I don't have anything. I'm going to let you guess which one of the nightmares is coming true today. Uh, but yes, uh, our, our guest preacher, Kenya Cummings, uh, she had an autoimmune attack. Um, so they are unable to make it today. They're, they're doing okay. Uh, and so we just kind of got the message last night that like, okay, you're, uh, they're not coming, so Colin, you're on. So I scribbled a couple notes down on some slides. Uh, we've got a, a few slides for you this morning. Uh, no funny memes. It, it's it's going to be pretty straightforward, but y'all like, hey, short sermon, it's a plus. <laughs> so uh, let's get to our text today. Uh, it is uh, Genesis chapter 1, 28 through 31. We're getting to the end of Genesis chapter 1, and we get to this place in our text, and it starts off on a good note. It says, uh, God bless them, right? Like, God has just made humanity, and then God blesses them. This sounds very nice. I like this. Uh, and then it kind of takes this kind of weird, awkward, kind of not uh, okay tone, because God says, I'm going to bless you, and now I'm going to give you this mission. This is your assignment. And the assignment is, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and conquer it, and hold sway. So why is this perceived as a problem. Well, a number of folks critical of Christianity and a number of folks that are very concerned with the environment uh, see this text, this particular line in Genesis 1.28 as significantly problematic. Uh, it might be best summed up, uh, there is a, a professor of history named Lynn White in the 20th century. Uh, he wrote a very influential piece in uh, the Journal of Science titled The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. And he says, really the reason why we're in this place in the 20th century and now, now in the 21st uh, is because of Christianity, particularly Western Christianity. And so according to White, he says, Christianity is the most anthropocentric religion that the world has seen. It is God's will that man exploit nature for his proper ends. So how do we understand this 
problem in Genesis 1.28. Essentially two things. One, it encourages overpopulation, right? Fill the earth, multiply, and you look around you're like, well, we, we don't need any more population, right? Whether it's the number of people or carbon, uh, but this passage is saying, well, you know, we just need to go overpopulate the planet. And the second part, as uh, White alludes to or says actually probably rather clearly, is that it exploits nature. We are the top dogs as humans and we can just do whatever we want with the planet and it is our right. And it says so right here in Genesis 1.28. So I want to just address particularly that critique and that fear and and, uh, help us in a way understand the context of 128 uh, in a way that is good for us but also the environment. First, though, I think we need to understand the context. And I think originally in this context for the Hebrew people, this was not a problematic statement. Because when you think about the conditions of the Hebrew people, both when this was being written as uh, in Babylon and when it began as an oral tradition, the Hebrew people are in both situations hopelessly outnumbered. They are a tiny tribe surrounded by many tribes. They're surrounded by a harsh wilderness. And then, yes, even when uh, hundreds of years later they are in Babylon, they are actually slaves in the Babylonian Empire. And they are facing the very real possibility of both cultural and literal genocide. And so for a pastor to say, hey, you need to multiply, you need to seek abundance, you need to grow in numbers, in both scenarios would be incredibly reasonable and expected. Even in the passages that talk about conquering or subduing, or however your translation reads there, the Hebrew is actually a, a very variable, but even in those contexts, they are surrounded by a hostile, semi-arid environment And so they need to subdue this environment so it can actually be hospitable for life. And even as they are surrounded by all these tribes, they need to conquer or they will be conquered. And so in the original context of these passages, I don't think we need to be too worried. However, here might be the objection. Okay, so that's fine. In the original context, the Hebrews needed to multiply. They needed to subdue the wilderness. That's, that's a normal thing in the ancient world. But now these passages don't mean anything. We should ignore passages like Genesis 1.28. We can just say that's descriptive for the time, but it's not prescriptive for us. But here's why I don't think we need to do that. And I don't think we should do that because everything we've been reading so far in Genesis is a beautiful description about the human condition and who God is, the nature and character of God, and our relationship with God. And I think this continues that. So how can this passage in Genesis 1.28 still be healthy for us in the environment? Well, I think the key thing is to note everything that has come before Genesis 1.28 in the previous chapter, and to note what will come at the end of Genesis, that's verse 31, the end of the chapter. So what has been said before and what has been said after will help us make sense of this text. So what has been said before? 
Now, if you've been with us in the previous couple weeks, we just finished by God saying, hey, I'm going to make everyone in my image. I'm going to make people in my image, which means we share in the divine nature. We share in the attributes of God. And in some way, we should often even try to be like God. We see God's character. We say that is good, and we want to emulate that. And so when we see that in Genesis 1.26, when God says, let us make a human in our image, in our likeness, that is starting to say, well, however we understand Genesis 128, we need to understand it through Genesis 126 because we are being like God. So, how then does God relate to creation? How does God interact with the environment? Well, when you go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, it's going to be in contrast to the Babylonian creation myths, right? We always are talking that everything we're reading in Genesis is going to be a polemic. It's going to be an argument against all the different pagan gods to say that our God is not like that. So when we get to Genesis 1-2, this is the beginning of the introduction of who God is. It says, God's breath hovering over the waters. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. And it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. So how does God create? God doesn't create with violence. That's what the pagan gods did. God creates with truth. And does God exploit the environment at all? No. Everything God is doing is creative. And does God even subjugate the planet in any way? No. God creates harmony. And so however we understand Genesis 128, we have to run it through the lens. We have to run it through the filter that we are made as image bearers of God. And God, as we have understood God in Genesis 1, is a God that does not use violence, that uses creativity and brings harmony rather than subjugation. That's how we understand our role and relationship to nature in Genesis 1.28. In fact, when you look at Genesis, you see this pattern that God orders the world and then God fills the world. And God does that on the first five days. God continues that pattern on the sixth day, but in the sixth day, God invites humanity to now participate with God in that filling. God is saying, you've seen what I've done. Now you continue that pattern of good stewardship and creation in nature. But it's not just the verses that come before it. It's also the verses that come at the end of the chapter. So let's look at verse 31. And God saw all that he had done, and look, it was very good. Now if you notice in Genesis, you'll see a couple places where God like makes things, and God's like, this is good. But then we finally get to this place at the end of Genesis, and God says, it is very good. Now, most people read this and they go, oh, well, that's because of us, right? Like, God made humans, and he's like, these guys are very good. This is, this is the best thing. And to be true, it, it is it, we are the pinnacle of creation. There is something special about us. But when you read the context, God doesn't make us and go, this is very good. God looks at everything God has made. And God says, mm, this is very good. We don't even get our own good. But we're part of the very good. 
So yes, we are the pinnacle of creation. But what this also means is we are dependent on the rest of creation. I think something in 1 Corinthians struck my eye as I was assembling all this in a hurry last night. I was like, well, what, what does the New Testament even say about this? But there's this passage in 1 Corinthians. We read it this morning in our first reading. And Paul's talking to a church, and the church is kind of having some ego issues, and, and they're, they're, they're kind of bumping into each other, and everyone's worried about their title and their role and all this. And he says, look, guys, you are one body. You guys are integrated. The, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Is this not our environment? That the way God made humanity is integrated and dependent on the rest of of creation. If we ever as humans begin to think that, oh yes, Genesis 128 means I'm the top dog, we're in control, we're here to exploit and use this however we want, we're not understanding our dependent and integrated nature. In fact, we've seen this throughout history, right? People have often said, oh, we'll just get rid of this lowly species of, of plant or insect or small animal, it won't matter, and then we find it actually messes up the entire ecological food chain. God is wanting us to see how dependent, even though we are made in the image of God, we are deeply dependent on the rest of God's creation and that we need to act and steward accordingly. We can't say to anything, oh, you're not important. We don't need that. If something in the environment suffers, we all suffer with it. And if something is honored, then we all rejoice with it. It's almost relational. And yet, some of you are probably like, this is nice. But Colm, you looked out lately, and, and the environment's not doing so hot. There's some problems out there. And so maybe even if this was the, the point, this was the mission of God, we have failed in that mission. We haven't been good stewards of creation. We haven't loved it well. We haven't realized our dependency on it and our integrated nature of it. We haven't given it honor and so is there any hope? I don't want to be Pollyanna, right? I think there's a danger sometimes in saying, well, no matter how bad we treat the environment, it's going to be okay. God's going to fix it. But I do think that if there is hope, we should see it in Scripture. I think God wants to give us hope. And so there's a passage in Revelation chapter 22 at the end of the story, God is restoring and renewing all things, verse 1 and 2, and, and this pops up. God showed me a river, clear as crystal. Its water was the water of life. The river came out from the throne of God and from the Lamb. It flowed down the middle of the wide avenue. Along the river banks and on either side grew the tree of life. The tree bore 12 kinds of fruit. Every month it bore fruit. The leaves of the tree healed the people of every nation. I like that. That gives me hope. Because even at the end of time as we know it, 
God makes this beautiful city. And in the center where God is, God has a perfectly clear and clean river. And in the center of that, God places a thriving tree. The tree produces fruit. And not only does the tree produce fruit, but it helps sustain people and heal nations. This idea that we are back in relationship, not only with one another, but with nature itself. And God says, this is my design. This is my plan. This is how I redeem all things. Because here's this really good news. When Jesus went to the cross, and when Jesus overcame death... Jesus didn't just fix our sins, didn't just fix our self with God. No, Jesus fixed the effects of our sin, and the effect of our sin is a degraded environment. And here's, y'all, the one thing I wrote down. Jesus didn't just reconcile our estrangement to God. Jesus reconciled our estrangement from the planet itself. Why? Because God is committed to all of creation. Not just the human part. And so God will redeem every part. May you today join God in that process of healing and renewal. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, let us go to God in prayer and confession. Would you pray with me? All right, Colin. Isn't this very good original blessing more original or more fundamental than original sin? Oh, yes. So this is, we're going to get to this in a few weeks, right? Uh, original sin, there's different variations of, of how you define this, but original sin is kind of like, hey, there's this, this, this woundedness or this brokenness within humanity because we choose to follow ourselves as God instead of God as God. But that comes after the original blessing. So like when we talk about, again, last week someone mentioned this well, like when you say, well, you know, this Amajo day, isn't that a really good thing? You're like, yes, that is a really good thing. And so when we talk about who God is and how God relates to us and relates to the world, we, we shouldn't start with things like original sin. We shouldn't start uh, with this idea that, like you're a wretched human and you need God. You, you start with you start with, you're made in the image of day, you start with the original blessing that God says that you and the whole world are very good and that this actually precedes the fall and that God is desiring us to return to that which God has made in the very beginning. That's excellent news. Does be fruitful and multiply command us to have children? Okay, great question. Very practical. Uh, originally, yes, right? Because you're literally talking like the first people. So yes, they're going to need to multiply. And in the Hebrew context, I think it would have been understood to be, hey, you need to multiply numerically uh, because for your very existence. I don't think that needs to be applied in the same way now. One, because of the obvious implications of overpopulation, but also when the church starts to be coming into existence, they begin to really understand that this idea of children and this idea of family is far bigger than 
biology and biological children. And so this is why the early church is really big on adoption, which was very, very uncommon at the time because they're starting to see, well, yeah, it's not really about blood. And they're starting to just view even the church itself as a family unit. And so when you read this about be fruitful and multiply, I do think this needs to, you need to understand this as growth. You need to understand this as abundance, but you don't need to see it as, well, if I'm going to be faithful to God, I have to have biological kids. This is more about how are you investing the goodness of God and other people and seeing that multiply in all different ways. So much good news this morning. All right, last one. (laughs) Yeah, big anti-energy right here. All right, does the stewardship of creation include other celestial bodies beyond that of Earth? Great question. Yes. Like, be nice to the moon, all right? Or we get to Mars, be nice to Mars. But how, how do we know it's right? It's, it's because if God made it, it's God's. And we are invited to be the steward of what God has created. And so that, if we ever get beyond the earth, that still applies, which I think is pretty amazing that something, a principle that ancient can actually still be very applicable, even if we become like a spacefaring people. Thank you, Colin, for those very, just great news this morning. And there were more questions that y'all were lovely enough to send in, and Colin is going to honor those questions by doing a little bit more research, and he will answer them tomorrow on Facebook Live. A little bit more, like, actual research? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm starting at zero tomorrow (laughs) morning. But if you have any more questions or questions about the questions, feel free to text them in, and Colin will address them tomorrow on Facebook. Great, thanks, Sam. And Instagram. Follow us on Instagram, too.